Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. New Year, new me. Really? No. (laughs) It's the same me. It just, the days have just gone on and I'm Mm. still here. It's that like from what you would call it. It's from uh, Follies. Good times and bad times. I've seen them all. Yeah, right, right. Something, but I'm here. I'm Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how I feel about every type of time celebration. Mm. A birthday. I hate New Year's. A New Year. Yeah. The days are it's just so arbitrary. one day to another. <laughs> like, this didn't even used to be, like, a big deal. New Year's? No. Do you have a history fun fact for us right now? <sighs> no one cared. I mean, it's not that no one cared. It just, like, wasn't the biggest part of the celebration. What was? Like, the 12 days of Christmas was bigger. Really? Yeah. Why? Because it just was. Like... This is shocking. No, it's not. Because it's religious? Yeah. Hmm. Like, Twelfth Night? Like, that... It's very mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Right. So like I'm Armenian, right? Fun fact, everyone. I'm mm-hmm. Armenian. Mm-hmm. I'm half. I know. That's why I'm blonde and it's confusing. But stick with us. Um, the other half is Jewish. So it shouldn't make sense. But here we are. Um, Twelfth night is from the 25th of December through the 5th of January with Some of it being the sixth, being like the 13th night. Like it depends on the Christian denomination. So Mm -hmm. in our, like the Armenian Apostolic Church and like the Orthodox Church, the sixth is Christmas. Like they celebrate Christmas on the sixth. Wow. So like that's when my grandma would like celebrate. Did not so, know that. You're talking about the 6th of January, not the 6th of yes. December, right? Yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. And remember how we've talked about the season of Misrule? Y'all, we're in it. Mm-hmm. We're in it. Oh, my gosh. It. Oh, my gosh. Things feel topsy-turvy. Could yeah. Could be that. And this Ooh. is derived from what Roman tradition, Chloe? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Saturnalia. Woo! <laughs> yeah. Also a big festival. Huge festival. Saturnalia was very fun. It involved lots of public banqueting. I'm 98% sure there was a race. Um, and people would get hit. Or was that a different one where they'd hit people for fertility? That might be a different one. They would take people and like whack the people who were racing with like leaves. For um, fertility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Checks out. Um, hey, 
I understand. It, it was a good time. Um, and I feel like it'd be a lot of fun. And you'd have uh, like a sacrifice and then people would like, it, it was a good Human time. Human or animal? Mostly animal. Um, I think occasionally they did do human, but that also could have been um, done by later people who were Christian, who were like, they were such heathens. They killed people. And it's like, no, they probably didn't. Um, But the whole point is that it was this idea of role reversal. Wow, we're getting into it. And this is, we are talking about something so different today. It's hilarious. Um, This just feels of the moment. I had to It is, it is. But there was a tradition of gift giving. And there was the ruler of like the Lord of Misrule. Mm-hmm. Um, he had to, he would get to like shout crazy demands, uh, mm-hmm. and then people had to do it. And the whole idea is just that it's like, just, just have fun. I'm into that. And then the Christians came along and were like, you know what we could do? We could use this because no one knows when Jesus is born. We could use this. And then th- if they celebrate saturnalia we can in fact get them to celebrate uh jesus and um so that's what that's what happened uh and then it was like the feast of the fools and lord of misrule we have 12th night which was on epiphany terribly exciting and then um christmas became a big deal and then also like new year's became a huge deal i don't really know when that transition happened but it like the whole custom of Saturnalia into like the 12 days of Christmas Mm -hmm. have existed and did exist in history much longer than us celebrating New Year's. Hmm. And I think it's also because... hmm? Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) It it was unrelated. I was going to say, I wonder if people still celebrate in, in certain... Like like in a, in a reenactment type of way, yeah, they do. Like fanatics there are weird of history. People like me, not weird. Like me, not who weird. Go and be like, you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna do it. That's I would it, do. It the in a thought crossed my kidding? mind. I would do it in a heartbeat. There's this amazing set of television shows, and there's like Victorian Farm or Tudor Monastery Farm or Wartime mm. Farm, and when mm. it is it's 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 an experiential archaeologist which sounds like or experimental whatever the greatest job of all time and a historian usually it's um ruth goodman whom i love and they go and like live on a farm in that time period for like six months to a year depending on the series see i'm into that amazing i would do it in a literal heartbeat i'd be so happy manifesting for you i'm manifest i just want to be on a farm and i don't want anyone to be able to bug me like just me my dog and if you mm-hmm. want to get to me you got to write me a freaking letter and it's gonna have to be delivered by a person probably which is that how our mail great. is delivered but you know what i mean like oh i do know like like hand i want to cook all the food i want to have to farm mm-hmm. i want to make mm-hmm. my own ale even though i'm gluten intolerant because i can't drink the water like i just want i do think though that if it. you made it couldn't you make your own type of gluten-free situation i mean it wouldn't be ale but yeah i, I mean i like would boil get the, i would just boil it. the water because i have the benefit of modern knowledge see you're already thriving but remember hildegard knew about boiling water 
Right. Yes. Ahead of her time in terms of germs. Uh, truly. Speaking of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, the person of the month. <laughs> We're going to fast forward about, mm, I can't do math, 800 years later. Sure. And we're going to talk about someone who might heard of in reference because of her connection to perhaps my favorite museum of all time. Mm. Um, but I had never looked into at all. And now that I have, I'm terribly excited. We're talking about Belle da Costa Green. Have you ever heard of her? I have not. I'm in for a treat. Well, you're in for a huge <laughs> treat. I'm only taking you back to 1879. This just happened. That was yesterday. That was yesterday, 1879. Are you kidding? <laughs> Unreal. I remember it well. Yeah. Where are yeah. we in the world? I'm taking you to Washington, D.C. You're kidding. I wouldn't joke. That's where my brother lives. Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm doxing him, I guess. Sorry, brother. What, that? what does that mean? Doxing? Yes. It's when you reveal someone's whereabouts online. Which is DC's not a, very a good large thing. City, though, yeah, it, it it was. I wasn't being. I was people being looking very for your if, if I no, of course not. I mean, sorry. I don't know. Maybe he's famous in his own way. Yes. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Jeremy. He listens to this. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> I just know him as your brother. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. He, he is my brother. Um, if I gave, we've never met in person, but it'd be fun. I'll tell him to listen to this episode. If oh, good. I gave out his literal address, that that would actually be doxing. Or his well, phone Why would number. you do that? Well, I wouldn't. This was all just a big joke. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A big okay, funny cool. ha-ha. <laughs> but he does live in D.C. Okay. See, that's that's like, it's like a an extremely vague, mild dox. The fact that Theoretically, like, live in New York and I live in San Diego. That, that's, we, we've doxed ourselves in that way as well. But if you like Google does. Yeah, you could find out all that information for anyway. sure. Okay. okay. Everybody has it on their LinkedIn, you know? It's true. It's true. Um, We're in so DC. Yeah, DC. We're in DC. It's 1879. Um, she was born to a really, really interesting couple. Her parents are um, Richard Theodore Greener and Genevieve Ida Fleet. Now, Richard Theodore Greener is... In and of himself, if he was a woman, we'd feature him, but he's not. So <laughs> get your own podcast. Anyway, no, he's very cool. <laughs> he was the very first um, African-American graduate of Harvard ever Ooh, in 1870. Sick. He graduated from law school at the University of South Carolina. And then this is all during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War. Do you know anything mm -hmm. about that? Do I have to go into it? I, it's a history podcast. I feel like we could give like a one sentence. Oh, cool. One sentence. That's crazy. Just happened. Okay. Um. Basically, the Civil War ended, right? Mm hmm Civil War ended. Congress abolished slavery. And the secession of the Confederates ended. They passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, which were known as the Reconstruction Amendments, which was basically helping to give freed slaves the same civil rights as white people. I say that. It's mostly men. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, mostly it is men. Um, and so basically reconstruction is that time of attempting to build the country back after the civil war. 
and to deal with the legacy of slavery. And it didn't end very well. And basically after Reconstruction ended, which I think was like, was it 1877? Oh, I should know this. I'm looking it up. I am going to look it up. My apologies. I'm going to look it up. Guys, I don't study American history. I'm sorry. It's That's hilarious. That I don't know. So Reconstruction started like, what? You can't know everything. You yeah, but know I want so to. Much. What's wrong with me that I'm like I'm there's lost a big, anyway? There's a big, there's a lot of years to remember in a lot of places yeah, with a lot of that's stuff. True, thanks. Okay, thanks, thanks. Okay, <laughs> I believe it's from 1865 to 1877. Yes, okay. yes, because the war ended 1865 and the Compromise of 1877 was, of course, in 1877. Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Stunning. Who got a five on U.S. History AP exam? Me. Okay. Um, yeah, you did. That was like a decade ago. Anyway, everything's fine. Um, Basically, this is also the time when the KKK became like really powerful. And so Reconstruction is this, it started really cool. Like it started really cool. It started with this like, we're going to do better, you know? Mm -hmm. It's really nice. I love the idea of it. Mm -hmm. Um, It didn't end well. Mm. It ended with everything becoming worse. I feel like we've understood that. It's that whiplash effect that happens after an excellent change in mm-hmm. um, society. Some might even say an improvement. Unfortunately, people, white men, uh, get scared and decide to lash out and protect themselves is what they think of. And this is when Jim Crow begins badly. And like, mm-hmm. it, this is just all the civil rights cases that are really, really famous. It's the five cases that go in front um, of the U S Supreme court. And basically it says that like, am I going too broad? No, this is great. It's like the idea that basically like you're not, you can't, the 13th and 14th amendments didn't, allow Congress to outlaw racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And the 14th Amendment was never really overturned, but like it's been effectively overturned. So during Reconstruction, they passed the Civil Rights Act of 1875, which was absolutely incredible. Mm -hmm. But in 1883, which is when the civil rights cases, which is like the general like five kind of landmark cases that were brought out uh associate justice joseph p bradley Uh struck down um holding that the 13th amendment what did he say merely abolishes slavery that's it and that the Mm. 14th amendment did not give congress the power to outlaw private acts of racial discrimination um associate justice john marshall love him Mm -hmm. um he was also known as the great dissenter i had a really fun uh professor in college and whose name was also john marshall but he was british and hated that everyone always thought he was john marshall anyway um also that guy would have been so so old uh like impossibly old anyway um john marshall <laughs> who was known as the great dissenter if you know anything about the supreme court i big fan he should have had a collar like a fun like lace collar like rbg anyway he wrote mm. that the substance and spirit of the recent amendments of the constitution have been sacrificed by a subtle and ingenious verbal criticism and it so. allows segregation um to not only move forward, but to move forward with like a robustness that is so upsetting. Um, and it 
didn't protect freed black people from the KKK, violence, mm-hmm. starvation, disease. It mm-hmm. gave repar. Here's the wild thing, guys. Are you ready to be mad? Part of Reconstruction <laughs> was giving reparations to slave owners for their loss, not to the Explain slaves. that. I can't. Explain how that it's, makes sense. It's society. everything. Ugh. Yep. Specifically does not make sense. Mm-hmm. Well, they lost some property, apparently, according to them. So, Oh. Boo. You mean human lives? <laughs> yep. yep, yep. <laughs> Great. Did you hear we about like the Benedict Cumberbatch thing? No. The the what his do? his family is being sued. I don't know if it's sued, but <gasps> for reparations Sorry. for historically owning, I think, two hundred and fifty slaves. That checks out. Yeah. They should pay the money. I maybe they already have. I didn't read into this enough to bring it up in this podcast, but it mm. felt relevant, so I did. That's hilarious and also good for them. Susan. <laughs> for um, those who are interested, this is a Googleable. Wait, is it? Wait, I'm the internet really knows curious. more than I do. Hold on, because <laughs> I need to know if it's happening in the United States, because then it would. Um... Hold on, I'm really curious, because then. Okay, Barbado- Barbados. Mm-hmm. The government of Barbados? Yes. Did I not say that? I should have said that. You I did not. I meant to say that. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Um, very interesting. I was going to say because if it is, I was going to ask if it was in the states because if so, that would lead to some interesting case precedent. But anywho, okay, so we're mm. in reconstruction. Re- mm-hmm. Reconstruction. Woo, reconstruction. <laughs> we're in DC, and Richard Greener is part of. He, he, they're existing in this really interesting part where the reconstruction era is like hopeful still there's hope that things will be different and better and richard greener is like perhaps the greatest example of that he was undeniably absolutely brilliant um he was born in philly in 1844 he moved to boston in 1853 with his family but he wasn't allowed to go to school because he was black um (laughs) he ended up enrolling in a private school but his dad (laughs) left the family for the california gold rush which i'm sorry it's not funny but it is um and then basically he was so smart that his people, he ended up, he had to drop out of school and he was working. And one of his employers basically sponsored him to enroll at the Oberlin Academy, which was a very, very well-regarded um, mm-hmm. prep school. He then enrolled at Phillips Academy, which is a crazy well-regarded prep school. He graduated in 1865. He went to Oberlin College for three years, but then actually went to Harvard and he graduated with a bachelor's in 1870. And by all accounts, his admission to Harvard was a, quote, experiment by the administration. It was literally Mm. like, what happens if we do this? What's really interesting is while there, he's like extremely – I mean, he he said that he didn't face the discrimination he thought he would have, um, Mm -hmm. like just by all accounts. But it's not like he was a happily accepted, like, you're one of us perfectly. Right. But he won the Bowdoin Prize. Expectations were low and they exceeded them, but mm-hmm. it wasn't like perfect. Right. Um, right. He was, he won the Bowdoin Prize for elocution twice. Um, he just became known as this like absolutely brilliant orator. And he served as principal for the, in- after graduating for the Institute for Colored Youth in Philadelphia for two mm-hmm. years. 
Mm-hmm. And he was there uh, because his predecessor was shot in a riot. So um, he worked um, as an associate editor of the New National Era, which was, um, for those of you in the know, Frederick Douglass's paper. They were good friends. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he started in 1873. He accepted the professorship of mental and moral philosophy at the University of South Carolina. And he was the very first African-American faculty member. And people lost their minds, lost Eesh. their minds, lost it, lost mm. it. And basically he was run out of town. He and he had gotten married to Genevieve Fleet at the time. And they had had one child who passed away as a baby and then another child mm. and they were run out of town and he wasn't able to collect his own back pay. Like it was ridiculous. God. So then – even though – so he had been, like, run out, but I believe he was still able to graduate from their law school. I'm not entirely sure how that works out. But he was admitted to practice mm-hmm. um, in South Carolina in 1876. And 1877 – oh, yeah, that's it. 1877, Reconstruction officially ended, and the university was, like, closed. <laughs> Got it. So then he was admitted to the bar in D.C., and he was a professor at Howard University of Law, where, shout out, my friend Kat is in her third year. Woo! Um, and he was actually the dean there for two years. And But while there, he happened to work on some really, really important legal cases. Um, and he was just a really, really interesting guy. He was active in Freemasonry. He was a law clerk for the comptroller of the U.S. Treasury. He and Frederick Douglass loved to debate each other. Um, and he was just this really, really well-known and well-regarded uh, member of W.E.D. Dubois called it, what did he call it? The, he called it the, uh, like, 10th, something 10th. It was like a group of really well-educated black men who, um, like, just were incredible and Mm -hmm. did a lot of really great work. And he, like, kind of founded this. I'm, I'm all over the place today, guys. But, um, (laughs) no, you're making sense. Oh, good. Um, but anyway, he was a part of this group. Um, he was with, um, like, he knew everyone, like Booker T. Washington, W.D. Dubois, Monroe mm-hmm. Trotter, um, mm-hmm. like, you name it, they knew each other. He was like, I mean, just wild. Um, there was a really famous case of um, Johnson Chestnut Whitaker, which was God, one of the most upsetting cases to read about. Um, I don't want to go into it because it's a lot, and I recommend you guys look it up. But basically, he was successful in that, which is absolutely wild considering the just, like, completely open racism and Mm -hmm. discrimination and, like, fanaticism, uh, unfortunately, against Black people. Um, And Whitaker was one of the first black men to win an appointment um, at West Point. And then while they're like, God, he was just brutally assaulted. And then they're like, you did it to yourself. We're going to sue you. Okay. And he was like, I was tied to a bed and my ears were cut off, but okay. Anyway, I said, I wasn't going to go into it. It's horrifying. Jesus. (laughs) Read up on it, get mad and go uh, March. Okay. So Hmm. greener, like I said, huge guy. And so he ends up moving to New York City. And in the meantime, I got to go back. We're mm-hmm. in 1879. 
her father, he's doing his thing. He is at the moment, I believe he's when she's born at the Howard University School of Law. He's the dean. Mm-hmm. Um, and her mom is actually born into an extremely cool, like African-American family in DC. Mm. And they, the fleets are like black DC elite at the time. They were okay. extremely well-educated. Every single one of her like brothers were named after <laughs> Like, they were all musical. So she had a brother, Mozart, and a brother, Mendelssohn. And what else did they name her brother? I mean, she had some really interesting brother names. Anyway, um, which I thought was just kind of hilarious. But I loved it. Um, So Genevieve is this music teacher. She's just, like, beautiful and brilliant. And they get married. And it was almost like he was a bit below her because he was a bit kind of an up and scrappy kind of guy. But what's interesting is that both of them were quite light skinned. And that's going to come into a huge play in Belle's story. So they're both really light skinned. And it affects Richard Greener's career because people start to say that he's like blending in with the white community. He's passing is what they call it. And that he is... um, like using that instead of fighting. Meanwhile, he devoted his life to fighting for um, black causes, but he like, it was just this idea that basically they were, they weren't black enough. Um, And what's interesting is something I think is, is an important thing to talk about is like at the time you didn't have, I I feel like it's interesting. We're going to talk about Belle and her opportunities, but Belle is really well known for passing. She lived her life as a white woman. And in doing so, it's quite divisive, I think, about like what the motivations were. But I think the motivations could be quite clear. She was already a woman trying to pursue a professional career. Mm-hmm. It's not like she needed to have another strike against her, which at the time is exactly what her race would have been. Right. And I think her mom saw that. Um, and we're, we're going to get into that a little bit. But it actually a lot of it, but it's just very interesting. So Richard Greener's kind of a volatile guy. He's absolutely brilliant. And, but he's always getting into like arguments and he's just very, very passionate, but it's difficult. It's a difficult world for him to try to navigate. And like I said, they're coming out of reconstruction when the the whiplash of that is so extreme. Mm-hmm. And cause people always want to know, like, how did we go from abolishing slavery and giving black men the right to vote to Jim Crow. And it's like the path was clear and this is when it's happening. Um, And so she lives with her mommy and daddy because she's a baby in DC (laughs) and they live with the fleet family. Who's like I said, like a really well-educated, well-known family. I think one of Genevieve's brothers is a doctor, like really Mm well-educated. And then her father gets on the, um, I think is it the Grant Memorial or yeah, basically like the Grant Monument Association, which is about Ulysses S. Grant, the, mm-hmm. you know, president. Um, yeah. After he died, there was like a huge commission and he was actually the secretary of that association. And that's a huge deal. They had to elicit funding and they um, like had to be a part of the design. And he was apparently like very intensely part of that. One of the major financiers was JP Morgan, um, Mm -hmm. which was really cool. And so, yeah, like a really, really important thing. So Belle's growing up in this really interesting and very dynamic household. And then they moved to New York when she's eight. 
And right around this time, something happens in their family. And we kind of know it via census records. But her mom, Genevieve, changed their names. So Belle was actually born Belle Marion Greener. Mm -hmm. And it seems like there was a lot happening in the family. I don't really know what caused it, but her parents separate. And ever since then, officially, Belle and her siblings and her mom are white. That's that's what they put. It's what census records record them as, and that's how they present themselves. Wow. And wow. so, yeah. So they changed their last name to Green. They just dropped the R. Um, mm-hmm. And... Belle, whether or not it was directed by her mom, I don't think she was quite old enough to make like this really conscious decision. So Belle and her brother Richard were, or Russell, excuse me, Russell, were both the darker skinned of the family, but they still look just like vaguely Southern European, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Totally. Her family was very mixed. Um, I think there was a Spanish grandfather a couple generations back and mm-hmm. clearly um, there were some white men who had done horrible things to some women that they owned. Um, and so the family was quite mixed anyway. And then the two people with very mixed backgrounds created even lighter kids, if that makes any sense. And yeah. just like how my parents, who are the shortest people in their family, created two even shorter people. It's incredible. Um, genetics. Gen- genetics, man. Um, wow. And so they changed their name to Green. Her mom changed her maiden name from Fleet because they were a really well-known family to Van Vliet, which is like a Dutch version of Van Fleet. Got and it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bell's Marion is dropped and becomes Da Costa. And it's this like fabricated Portuguese background. And whenever people asked her about it, she was like, yeah, I had a Portuguese grandma. Like, and Russell had the same thing. So he was Russell to Costa Green, but her sisters just became like green, not greener. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really interesting thing. It seems like, oh, sorry. Since then, the family started to kind of use what they could to distance themselves from their black heritage and background. And again, I think at the time it must've been extremely fraught, but also I'm try I like if I try to understand from their perspective it makes sense if you can why wouldn't you to better right. yourself in your life she's now mm-hmm. a single mother I think she has five kids um <laughs> you know yeah. she's doing yeah. what she can for her family and mm-hmm. she also has witnessed some extreme violence uh, to black against black people and mm-hmm. there's protection to being able to claim whiteness and mm-hmm. that's part of that privilege and so I think they end up saying that um, Belle says, oh, I was born in Virginia, not D.C. And she also, like, later in life ends up saying that she's, like, six years younger than she actually is. <laughs> Which I think was also just, like, a thing that women did, though. So I don't know if that was part of it. And but... still do, I think, honestly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. So Belle is, from a young age, like, deeply intelligent. And we mm-hmm. know that deeply deeply mm-hmm. intelligent and she ends up going to school um and becoming like going to a, a school for like becoming a teacher which both of her sisters were hmm. and then she ends up just becoming really well educated and something that's really interesting is her dad had given her this book um and he would take her to like the met and they would like he was 
like I said, it was just extremely educated man. And mm-hmm. so he would take her to the Met and like teach her about the arts. And like I said, her mom is a music teacher and they're like the, the culture of their family must've been incredible. And right. so she has this deep passion and love for books. Mm-hmm. Same girl. Same. <laughs> um, and so they end up, it, it just ends up really forging this obsession for her. And in around 1902, she ends up getting to work at the Princeton University Library, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, she is white. Princeton was one of the only universities at the time. It was real shitty, guys, I have to say. Uh, Princeton was one of the only universities, uh, it was the only Ivy who wouldn't accept black students and refused to accept women. And also, like, most of the people... um, who were going to school in Princeton were actually from the South. So it's clear why, but it's like, doesn't mean it's not shitty. So it's to me like her attempt and to remain part of the white culture was also a bit of bid for survival. Um, Cause it would have been very dangerous. Princeton, the town was also quite bad, like racist wise. So right. getting the job there is a great opportunity, but also I think, you know, kind of highlights the danger of, of passing because when people found out it, there were many stories of people finding out about someone passing and lynching them. Um, so, Ooh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Because how dare they, right. Dare to claim. <sighs> there was this idea, it's called the one drop rule. Um, Ew. and this, <laughs> yep. It pervaded everything, which is that even one drop of black blood made you black. And people regardless really- of, how you feel about it. It was, it, it was giving a political and social, um, like status to people. Like it mm-hmm. affected whether or not they could do things in the world that, that rule became like a legal thing. So it's, right. you know, regardless of if you're someone of color who is like, yeah, that that's ex- absolutely how I feel. That's amazing. But at the time that rule wasn't about your identity in your own self-acceptance, it was about a way to marginalize and to uh, limit people. Mm-hmm. So she's working at Princeton University in 1902, and she meets Junius Spencer Morgan II. Love interest? No. Oh. <laughs> he is the nephew of, who did we mention before? J.P. Morgan. There you go. And he is obsessed with books and they meet and they're like, oh my God, are we best friends? So he starts training her in like, and and giving her access to some of the really amazing rare books that he, and by way of his uncle had donated to Mm -hmm. the Princeton library. So she gains an extraordinary knowledge in the cataloging of, and reference work and also of rare books. And that's becoming her passion, especially in Cunabula. In Cunabula means in the cradle. So it's the cradle of printing. These are books that are published within the first 50 years of the printing press being developed in 1450. So it's from like 1450 to 1500. If you're Mm -hmm. a book that was published in 1501, you don't count. Okay. So these in Cunabula are Gutenberg's, are um, Caxton books, are you name it, like amazing kind of early printing books, which mm-hmm. is really also about like this kind of cementing of 
a language and of a culture in a way that you never had before. The dissemination of knowledge was so much more rapid. It was less expensive. It was, Mm. I mean, just, oh God, printing. Oh, I could talk about it forever. I love (laughs) Incanabula. Anyway, books. Um, So she became as rightfully she should obsessed with them because they were amazing. And Junius saw how- I do want to point out. Yeah. Bell books. (gasps) I'm I'm just putting that out there. I'm just putting that out there. I, I watched the the Beauty and the Beast anniversary celebration with her. How was it? So it's top of mind. It, I, it was good. I don't like Josh Groban. I I don't think. I I think I didn't understand what it was going to be in advance. I I didn't. I thought it was going to be a concert, uh, like a like a full concert, but it was a I lot of a concert intercuts with the actual film and then uh interviews and behind the scenes of the original animated film it was interesting it just wasn't what i was prepared to be watching if that makes sense yeah i thought it was a concert too well now i know i don't need to watch it but anyways bell books love it i'm so cool i'm on board didn't think about it Okay, so Junius is this really lovely guy, and throughout, like, the entirety of their lives, she's like, we are, like, intellectual soulmates. Like, they're just good friends. Um, And he – J.P. Morgan. Mm -hmm. Quick little background. He has a hilarious portrait. J.P. Morgan's one of the richest men in the world at the time. He Mm – was a financier, an investment banker, and – he basically like he if the, when the we're going to go into it but like in 1907 when the economy was about to collapse he literally locked all of the head financiers and like people in his library which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. locked until they could find a solution so that the economy wouldn't collapse like he was unbelievably powerful and was able to stop multiple um panics and recessions and depressions from happening so single-handedly unbelievably powerful but also absolutely and deeply in love with collecting and books Mm. and Mm. art and antiquities and just absolutely passionate about it and so he builds this extraordinary um house Mm-hmm. Where is it? It's on 38th and Madison, I believe. Um, and it's the private library for Morgan. It is now mm-hmm. known as the Morgan Library Museum. Hint, hint. My favorite place. Um, <laughs> so he's finishing the completion of his new library building and office because he needed to get away from people who bugged him. And Junius was like, I think I want you, Bell, to interview for the position um, as his personal librarian. Mm. Which is absolutely insane. Right. How cool is that? Uh, and very so cool. does she they, <laughs> she gets that interview and mm-hmm. apparently she says to him basically her goal was to make his library, and I quote, preeminent, especially for Incanabula, manuscripts, bindings, and the classics. Mm. And he hires her. And in 1905, her very first job is to organize, catalog, and shelve his collection. And mm. boy, does that take forever. But 
it gives her a really good sense of what they have, what she thinks their collection should have, right. and um, where it could go. And she says, like, this, you with your, like, resources have the potential to, you know, become one of the greatest collectors and have the one of the great collections for things that you're passionate about, which are... I mean, he was an absolutely passionate reader. Um, mm-hmm. He was uh, just loved manuscripts and, and rare books and um, sketches and, you know, illuminated manuscripts. And mm-hmm. so he already had a couple really excellent things in his collections, including two Gutenberg Bibles, which was hilarious. He had two and he's like, I don't need any more. Um, and so they end up becoming this wonderful partnership between the two of them where he just ends up trusting her implicitly literally says spend whatever you want make my collection the best and so she does and so she starts going to auctions and she's playing it so well she i mean he's giving her quite a large sum of money for hey i'm ryan reynolds at mint mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Her, her position at the time, I think she was given $75 a week, which meant that her mom could stop working and they could afford like a lot. Her brother was at Columbia getting his PhD at the time. Mm. And so they could afford to pay for his education as well. Mm-hmm. And eventually she's making like a hilarious amount of money a year. I mean, she ends up making like, upwards of 10 grand a year which at the time was unheard of um mm-hmm. and it just goes to show like how absolutely like vital she was to morgan and not just as his like assistant effectively and librarian but also as a confidant and a friend and so they he ends up allowing her to travel abroad and in 1908 she gets to go to london and he ends up basically saying to her, like, I want, I mean, everything. And she's like, got it, but I'm going to make sure they're good. And so she, as an expert on illuminated manuscripts, you know, negotiates these incredible deals. And she becomes, like, really well-known. She's this pretty small woman with this semi-exotic background because no one knew what she was. She clearly wasn't white, but... She was white, but she was of a slightly different white background. She claimed Portuguese. Everyone's like, Mm -hmm. okay, fine. Mm -hmm. Um, Not least of which the fact that she was a woman was so limiting to her. And so she would show up and wear 
beautiful, extravagant clothes and had quite a style and just became this like wild personality. So she really just like would start to kind of flirt with some of the men to really, you know, throw them off, which I think is hilarious. And, you know, it, she just kind of is this unbelievable personality. And one of the things I love is that she goes about on this feat. So she goes abroad and is like, basically she can do things that no one else can do because she's Morgan's librarian and she Mm -hmm. knows it. And he also is like, do it girl. I love and support you. Like go do what you need to do. Boss them around. And I want all of the stuff that I want. And Mm -hmm. like, she just becomes unbelievably well-known because all of a sudden at these auctions that were known for being kind of drab, but kind of exciting because you never know what people are going to buy. There's Mm -hmm. this woman who would occasionally use a feather from her hat to like raise her hand and she'd be auctioning for unbelievable sums of money. Um, Mm. And it didn't matter because she knew what she wanted and she knew how to play people. So one of my favorite, I know. Obsessed. Obsessed. One of my favorite anecdotes about her is her dealing with the Caxton, like a set of 16 Caxtons. Um, And (laughs) basically it's after, no, it's not after the war. It's before the First World War, but a lot of the estate taxes in England had changed and a lot of lords were becoming bankrupt and had to sell off part of their collection. And so Mm. she heard that a set of 16 or 17 or 16 Caxtons were going on sale. And so she travels for part of this um, auction and she meets up with um, the Lord before. And um, she tells him that like, I will pay 20% more if this doesn't go to auction, you sell it to me privately now. And he was like deeply insulted. And so he left, but she said, Hey, you give me a decision. And up until the auction, like this deal is in force. And so like, no one did that. That's not how it worked. These things Mm -hmm. went up for auction and they went up for auction. That's how it was going to be sold. And so she's dining with all of her friends who are all these bookmen is what she called them. And they're all the men that they're all competing for their own respective institutions or for their own collections. And so they all know about the Caxons and everyone, this is going to be the prize of the auction. Right. And so Mm -hmm. she's, this is a great, she, she was a prolific letter writer. So we have a, she burned a lot of her correspondence, but we have some of what she said. And, um, so she's at dinner with them the night before Mm -hmm. and she had been waiting for the telegram from the Lord as to whether or not she would get the books. And she was just being handed a telegram. And so the men are questioning her and he says, this is a letter from her. One of them turned to me during the evening, Miss Green. He said, will you promise me that in the morning you'll not bid against me for such and such a Caxton? I was on the, um, I was on the, uh, Kiviv waiting for my telegram, which would tell me whether or not I had swept the collection from under the hammer. And as luck would have it, just before I replied, the missive was placed in my hands. I read the gladdening news. Our offer had been accepted. Yes, I said, I'll promise not to bid against you at the sale tomorrow. And she believes that's her greatest coup. So she she was like, yeah, I won't bid against you because I already bought it. Wahaha. <laughs> I love it. I think it's amazing. And it broke news. People lost 
their minds that that happened. I get that. And I think it's incredible. They're like, what? She did what? Um, Changing the rules. And it's it's just so cruel. So cruel. Um, <laughs> so there are all these articles starting to be written up about her, not least of which because she's entering New York society as like Morgan's librarian, but also just like she gets to know a lot of these people just by virtue of dealing with the highest you know, people in society with their collections and also because she's becoming well-regarded as an expert. And mm-hmm. so she lives the high life. She's partying. She goes to the operas, usually in Morgan's box. She's like going to all the great events. She goes to like the weddings of the seasons that people would kill to be, you know, she is mm-hmm. doing it and she's having a great time. She's like flirting with everyone. She's having the best time. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she's just like, I want it. it. I want yeah. it. I want it. I want, I want it. it. I got it. I want it. Yeah. Wait, I like it. This is an Ariana Grande quote. Oh. I see it. I like it. I want it. I got it. That's what it is. I'm not at the last bit, but I'm on that journey. <laughs> you know? Stunning. Yeah. She's amazing. So she's like collecting books and there's a really funny um, <laughs> cartoon of Morgan uh, himself with like a magnet across the Eastern seaboard and all the great collections from Europe are like being pulled toward him. It's a really funny cartoon. I'll try and find it. Um, But yeah, so she is spending years now with Morgan getting paid unbelievably well by what year was it? She ends up getting paid $25,000 a year. Something absolutely insane. Hold on. Wait, is it 2,500? No, it was $25,000 a year. Um, before 1911 yeah so she starts earning an absurd amount of money like killing it she buys an apartment for her and her family they are living this incredible life through her um Mm -hmm. and another one of her great coups was in 1911 there's this great auction with um one of the Huntingtons. Do you know the Huntington library? It's this amazing library in Huntington beach. Um, and it's this absolutely beautiful, beautiful place. Um, and they're known for their gardens. If you've watched the good place, most of that was like filmed at the, (laughs) it wasn't filmed on the universal lot. It was like in the Huntington gardens. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, isn't it? It's kind of fun. Mm. They're really beautiful. Um, so she goes to this auction and there's this bidding war for, L'amour d'Arthur, which is the, I, I'm not French, so you could say it better, but like the death of Arthur, which is one mm-hmm. of the first things that William Caxton ever published. It's it, an unbelievably, it was like almost people weren't sure it existed. Like there was like a rumor about that book. Like it was such mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, mm-hmm. And so because chiv- uh, chivalric romances were some of the most important works at the time. And so the publishing of it was wild. And hmm. I mean, he published like Canterbury. To, like, oh God, Caxton is so cool, guys. Look him up. Anyway, um, he basically invented modern English. It's fine. Everything's fine. Um, and so the L'Amour d'Arthur. Mm-hmm. How would you say Arthur? It's D apostrophe that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can you say it? L'amour. I did. 
Oh, l'amour d'Arthur. Oh <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so much better. It's just really nice. I'm glad. Thank you. Um <laughs> so that book was like real big deal. And everyone's like, oh, is it real? Because it was like, where is it? So it finally surfaces in a collection. And in 1911, mm. she gets into that bidding war with Arabella Huntington's nephew. And they're going back and forth. And it starts at this absurd sum of money. So she doesn't start bidding for it until it's at least $21,000. And which at the time was like, Anyway, it's a lot of money. Um, lot. So, it's still a lot now, but I'm sure a lot it's more over. Then. It's like half a million. It's a lot of money. And so she is like watching it because she's like, I want to see what people are doing, right? So then she watches mm-hmm. the bid and it goes and she enters the bidding race and it goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth until finally mm-hmm. she bids, what is it? 42800 dollars and Huntington doesn't match it and she wins um that book at the at the Coxton book at the sale and she is written up in like the New York Times as women who earn big wages Belle de Costa Green and there's this like in that bit about how much she earns a year which is an exceptional amount of money mm-hmm. um they also mentioned how much she bid for the Caxton edition of the Mordateur so just like this wild personality. And around the same time, she meets a man who becomes deeply important in her life. He's the Renaissance Italian art expert, Bernard Berenson. And mm. I don't care that much about this man, even though I understand how important he was to her. But what's cool is he and his wife, Mary, mm-hmm. um, they were both really brilliant people. Um, and they both kind of worked together. And um, he was friends with Ray Bradbury and Natalie Barney and Edith Wharton and Cole Porter and everyone else who was like so cool. And he was Isabella Stewart Gardner's like main kind of like art collector. Like he helped her a lot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Isabella Stewart Gardner, for those who don't know, was an amazing philanthropist and patron of the arts and her museum known as the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, is in Boston. And if you don't go when you're in Boston, you've not done it right. So you got to go. It's amazing. And so they, he like works with her, but he's also just like this world-renowned regarded Italian like art expert. Mm -hmm. And so they meet and it's like instant attraction. And what's interesting is he and his wife, Mary, have a very open relationship. And people know about it at the time. This is before relatively uncommon. It was, it was, but we were, we were getting into like almost the twenties. So things were getting kind of fun. Right. Yeah. Um, the twenties were even more fun. And then everyone again, whiplash back to propriety. Um, so Mm -hmm. whatever, but he was a really interesting guy. (laughs) God, it's so annoying. Um, (laughs) anyway, um, so Mary's a brilliant art historian. She goes on kind of lectures. She, um, you know, they meet and it's like intellectual love. But Belle, by all accounts, hasn't really had any major romantic relationships. And so 
she's like happy to have like an epistolatory relationship, but she doesn't really move forward in like a physical sense of it. So they correspond with each other for like a year and a half before they're able to meet. Why you ask? Because he lives in Italy. He bought a mm. villa with his wife called the uh, Villa Itatti, which is a really famous villa um, overlooking Florence. And it's incredible. It's currently owned by, it's the Harvard Center for Italianate and Renaissance studies. And Mm -hmm. it was given to Harvard by him because guess what? He went to Harvard. Um, Who didn't in this story? Yeah, apparently everyone. Everyone. Where did Morgan go? Hold on, I'm going to look it up now. Oh, no, he went to University of um, Göttinger. Mm. Mm-hmm. But J.P. Morgan Jr. went to Harvard, don't worry. Um, <laughs> no worries here. Stupid. Okay, so... Um, yeah, so Bernard is big deal. Major expert on the old masters. He's also, like, a huge part in kind of the legitimization of paintings. So, mm-hmm. and verifying... Um, that they're not forgeries. So that was a big deal at the time. There's a huge amount of um, like forgeries going on in the world because art collecting is becoming so popular. So of course what happens when that happens, they're able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like he was a bit kind of, he could have had a sketchy bit. We don't have to go into it. All that I know is he was apparently quite the magnetic figure and in her own right, so was Belle. And they mm-hmm. just became deeply indebted to each other, endowed and loved. And they had this unbelievable correspondence, which thankfully the Morgan has um, pretty much in their own collection. Mm-hmm. And they're able to um, kind of meet with you. So she says, Oh, well, we'll talk about that later. Hold on. Um, So they meet. They're in love. They don't really get to be in love that openly for a while. And then in 19, is it 11? After like a year, is it 1912? I don't remember. I think it's 1911. She gets to go to Italy and they consummate their relationship. And it's a really big deal for her. And it's a big deal for him. Um, They... They both call each other the love of each other's lives. Like, it's this whole thing. Hmm. And they have this, like, beautiful time kind of being with each other. Um, What's interesting is they're always in each other's lives for the rest of their lives. They're, like, always in each other's lives. Mm -hmm. And it seems like later scholarship has kind of confirmed that she most likely became pregnant at the time. And that just would not have been okay. So Mm. she ends up at his express urging and he was like, no, I don't want kids. He didn't want kids ever anyway. He was like, I need you to get an abortion. She almost dies. She has to go to London and thankfully lives, but he like doesn't visit her and is a shitty Mm. human. Um, So initially like, you know, she's writing letters to him saying, this is, a, I love this quote. She goes, like, this is before they end up meeting. She goes, egoist, listen, I doubt if I shall be able to love you much longer without seeing you. So you had better plan to come back to these shores soon. Right? Great. Hilarious. Mm-hmm. Then she writes this letter to him 
I feel so near to you tonight, darling. The miles and miles and the horrid ocean seem to be utterly eliminated. And I am with you, sitting beside you on the sofa at Claridge's while you read me the book of French verse, walking about the narrow streets of Urbino, holding your hand in my breath as I sit beside you in the choir stalls at Arezzo. And then hmm. she leaves London. He doesn't see her. And many years later, about 10 years later, she ends up writing this to him and they do stay in each other's lives, but I think it just kind of broke her. She said, Hmm. I am trying tonight to analyze my antagonism. I know that its roots lie in the remembering of the really innocent. That sounds funny, but it's true. Utter and world excluding worship I once gave you. Certainly I can never give anything approaching it to anyone else for the simple reason that it is no longer existent. In fact, I think it really ceased to exist when I left you to go to London. Only I did not know it then or for a long time afterwards. Mm. So this dick broke her heart, forced her to have an abortion. She almost dies, but their bizarre connection to each other continues and they remain in each other's lives. Around 1921, it seems like, which is when she wrote that letter, it seems like there was quite a break um, in that relationship it could have been he was extremely jealous which is wild for a man in an open marriage who also was the one mostly having affairs um and you know it it's just a complicated relationship i think he seemed like an extraordinarily selfish man um which i don't think anyone would deny Mm -hmm. and you know he required a lot of like the women who were with him and didn't really allow for any flexibility. Later it was coming out that he may have been having pretty unsavory uh, relationship, like secret relationship with the Duveen brothers who were great um, kind of brokers. Mm. And it seems like perhaps he was authenticating things for them that may not have been authentic or considering them more valuable and that they were giving him perhaps up to 25% of the proceeds. So it seems like that's actually quite new research into him. Um, and we're not quite sure of like the extent of that, but perhaps Bell learned of it and got mad. There's a historical fiction novel written about her that like gives that as the reason for her like break with him. But I don't think that was an extent of it and also would have been pretty risky to tell her about that considering like she was unbelievably principled and viewed herself like as jp morgan's protector like great protector Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so i don't think she would have dealt with that very well so she and morgan were hilarious like she would do these funny things to like get away with doing import taxes so like one year she like pretended that like the customs agents found a couple things in her luggage, but like the other stuff she like hid in her own personal luggage. And so when she got to the library, like she, one of the things was a gift from Berenson and she had to write, have a letter written from him to confirm it was like a personal gift. So it was like held until then, but she got away with like a painting, bronze statues and a really expensive watch for Morgan. And she says, when I landed at the library with all of JP's treasures, we, well, he and I did a war dance and laughed in great glee. <laughs> I think it's a war dance. They did a war dance. I have great visions of this. Like, especially when you have picture pictures it. of like yeah. JP Morgan, who was this like large guy who had quite a temper. Just the fact that they were as close friends as they were, I think is excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1913, he unfortunately passes away. 
and he leaves her with $50,000, which is like $1.4 million today, which is wild. And he continues to have her live at the library as long as like she wants to work there and she's getting an immense amount of money a year still. Mm-hmm. And she's working with his son, J.P. Morgan Jr. And they are actually quite good friends. She called him Jack. And um, Jack and his wife were lovely people and they loved Belle. Belle was basically a part of the family at this point. It was kind of wild. And so Belle is still living her best life. Although by all accounts, she's deeply devastated by Morgan's death, kind of viewed him as a father. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think... Considering that, by all accounts, after her father and mother separated, most likely she didn't really see him again. Um, And Mm -hmm. so there aren't really any records that they ever saw each other after that. And she would have been like maybe 16. So, um, yeah, it definitely, I think, would have been that kind of relationship and very tricky. People wanted to read into like a romantic thing, which is really interesting, um, just because he was such a philanderer and he had like always all these mistresses. But Mm -hmm. um, later asked if she was his mistress, she gave a really interesting answer. She said, we tried. (laughs) I think that's hilarious. So probably not. But I love it. (laughs) We tried. (laughs) We tried. Um, I think it's hilarious. I think that's my favorite new answer for things. Um, That's a great answer. Well, we tried. And I think she, like, loved to play with people. I think she loved to fuck with them and, you know, just give them whatever she felt like she could, like, back. Mm -hmm. I just Mm -hmm. think it's great. Um, Throughout all this time, she's still cultivating great friendships of her own with powerful people, including Isabella Duncan and – or Isadora Mm -hmm. Duncan, excuse me, and Ellen Mm -hmm. Terry, the great actress. And Mm -hmm. they just are these excellent people. And she becomes part of the Greenwich Village, like, kind of set, which is this, like, up-and-coming set mostly of a lot of women fighting for suffrage. And she's not a huge part of it, but she is in the throng of it. And I think she's just having a grand old time. Um, She, like – just you know she has all these lovely people she gets to know and people respect her but one of her main goals was something that was in the will of for jp's will or yeah she also what does she sometimes call him big chief she called him all number of things especially when he was mad just to make him angry which i think is incredible um and so sounds very playful she sounds so she is so playful we have some excellent portraits of her that she sat for because people wanted pictures of her or, you know, other things. And there's a great page of like $40,000 for that book of her bidding for the Caxton and, you know, other bits where she's posing and profiles are being written about her. What did the New York times JP says she's the cleverest girl I know. Um, And he says, She's chic, vivacious, interesting, and in fact, a dandy, wholesome American girl. She wears her hair long, does not use glasses, runs to Europe on secret missions, and is the terror of continental collector's agents. Her name is Belle Green. And that is a contemporary article written about her. It's excellent. So she's becoming unbelievably well-known and and continuing that reputation. Like, everything she does just extends it. Mm -hmm. Um, But her main goal was basically... She always believed that these books 
should not have just been collected for their own personal use. That was never something she wanted. And she knew J.P. Morgan felt the same. In fact, in his will, there was basically a bit about um, the use of it for research, uh, of his collections for research and all that. And so she, with the help of J.P. Morgan Jr., officially open and follows from like around J.P. Morgan's death to 1924. It takes that long basically to transform the personal collection to a public institution. And Mm. so she was named the director or the directress, depending on who it was, of the Pierpont Morgan Library. And she retained that position for 24 years. Wow. And she was known as the best known librarian in the country. Hmm. She staged unbelievable exhibitions and one of them was even the Morgan library a year after she retired in 1948 um, staged an exhibition of over 250 of the best items that she had purchased. And she got to go in a wheelchair, which is so cool. She was a fellow in perpetuity with the Met. She was one of the first women named as a fellow of the medieval Academy of America. She Hmm. was on the editorial board of the Gazette de Beaux-Arts and art news Um, and just lived this unbelievable life that again, I have to say was only possible because she was passing and portrayed herself as such. Um, I think what's interesting is it, there's some debate about like whether or not it would have been able to happen anyway and whether or not Morgan knew some people say, yes, he knew. Some people say, no, he didn't. There's some research coming out recently that suggests that, in fact, he did know and didn't care, which seems likely even though he was a raging anti-Semite, but apparently he was like, chill with the bell. So that's good. Um, yeah. Sometimes you have exceptions for people you care about. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Um, so, you know, it, it's interesting because people don't want, I think, a lot of the times to say, like, there's this note of exceptionalism, which her father suffered from a bit. I mean, he ended up becoming a general attache basically to the u.s government on behalf of russia and he served as like well they weren't allowed to be like consulate but he was the um uh, he was america's first black diplomat to a white country Mm -hmm. and he served in um vladisvostok russia which is like very close to japan and so he was vital during like the russo-japanese war which was huge Mm -hmm. um he actually ended up marrying like a Japanese woman and having two kids, even though he never officially divorced Belle's mom. But anyway, so like he was this, there was this element of exceptionalism around him. And I don't know what Belle would have thought of that, but I have a sneaking suspicion she would have hated it. And I think, you know, she was just happy to be living this great life. I think she knew that the time wasn't ripe and ready for a black woman to be doing that. And Mm -hmm. although that was obviously incorrect and not, a truthful statement it was the status of the world and she was able to play with people and have this very kind of witty repartee and i think you know she was afforded all the privileges of living as a white woman and it's so clear in the way she was able to live her life and to play uh the way she did with people and and i say play with great adoration not like meanness you know um so she loves to be coy and, you know, articles love to be written about her, but she kind of loves to leave things to 
their own interpretation, including that of her ancestry and race. Mm-hmm. It was, it seemed to always be like kind of a thing that people wanted to bring up, but like no one really ended up talking about it. And I wonder if it was just like, if no one talked about it, it didn't exist, if that makes any sense, which is like mm-hmm. so wild to me. Cause then if, if that was the case, then I would go like, well, then it shouldn't have mattered, but of course it shouldn't have mattered, but you know what I mean? Um, I do. It just shows that this wasn't that long ago. And a woman had to completely deny who she was and accept other parts of who she was, which is true. She was mixed race, but like, you know, deny her connection to her culture and her blackness and her family and her father, who was this unbelievable, you know, black man who fought tooth and nail to the end for black rights and Mm -hmm. the rights of those trodden upon in this country And in doing so, she got to live this incredible life, right? She was wealthy. She knew all the best people. Like she dined with the Vanderbilts and the Astors and you name it. They were, they all knew Belle Green. Everyone knew Belle Green. And, and, but, and it was without that tokenistic like element, but I wonder, I don't know. A lot of the questions I've been having while reading about her is, you know, what would have happened one thing that's really interesting is she destroyed her personal papers before she passes away. So she dies in 1950. She suffered a series of pretty severe strokes and then officially Mm. one really got her. And Mm. basically it was just like a sad day for New York and a bunch of people. It was devastating to a lot of people when she passed. Um, Kind of beautiful that she affected that many people though. I know. Oh, well, and that's the thing. And not only that, she has continued to affect by virtue of her efforts to make the Morgan Library public. Mm-hmm. She has continued to affect the lives of hundreds of thousands of people who go mm-hmm. to that collection, who are able to do research and get fellowships with them. They're an mm-hmm. incredible organization, not least of which because of Belle Green. And they're actually, oh my God, I'm so excited. They have an exhibit coming out about her in 2024 and I like can't oh, deal. No way. Um, yeah. And the Morgan, I mean, they've done so many amazing things. They have this whole section called Belle de Costa Green and the women of the Morgan. That's like the precursor Mm. to that exhibit. Mm -hmm. They discovered this terracotta bust of her by Joe Davidson. And it's now in view in the East room of the library, which is the incredible library with the book cages and the tapestries. And, you know, she's right there in the middle of her greatest work, which was absolutely the collection and dissemination of knowledge. I mean, she tried to get facsimiles of books of theirs published and given to institutions all around the world so that the scholars wouldn't have to pay to come and study the originals at the Morgan. That's Mm -hmm. unheard of. That was basically like digitizing their series. Does that make any sense? Like, yeah. Unreal. Making it accessible. Absolutely. Yes. It wasn't just about, you know, this avaricious man who wanted the world for himself, which he kind of did, but he was also very much like, no, this does need to be shared. And Mm -hmm. she was like, I see you. I hear you. Not only do I agree with you, I'm going to make it happen. And she did. She did. Extraordinary. Icon. And that museum is still open, right? Still disseminating Mm -hmm. knowledge that she collected and Mm. made sure was the case. I mean, and now coming out, I mean, it only came out not too long ago during a really important book that was written about Morgan himself someone actually looked into Belle Green and said, oh, she was black. And that wasn't even a discussion. It was enough that she was this amazing librarian who was a Mm -hmm. woman, right? That was enough of a thing. 
But that, it came later. And what does that mean for her legacy? I think it's a really interesting thing, but I feel like her legacy to her matters more about, you know, bibliographical things and scholarship and that she mentored people and she made sure that the objects were loaned and photographed and Mm -hmm. she helped to establish work for women, like female scholars and librarians. I mean, she was just this all around force of nature who was, if anything, more concerned that everyone got the knowledge, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's just really really meaningful to me. And it's so interesting because I've gone to that library quite a few times because I freaking love it. They have, you know, the, the DaCosta hours, which are of no relation to her, which is very funny because of course that was her taken name. And originally it was said to be uh, Hans Memling um, uh, illustration, uh, illumination, which it actually wasn't, which is interesting because it was proved to not be. But it was proved to be by Simon Benning, who was also a wildly incredible um, uh, illustrator, a miniaturist. And so it was bought by her. And it's this absolutely extraordinary, um, you know, book. I mean, the Caxton series, they have one of the greatest collection of Incunabula in the world. British Library has got nothing on them. I mean, they've got everything. <laughs> and... The Gutenberg, fine, but the illustrations, all of the different um, sketches they have. Um, who was the, one of his favorites? Was it, They had a, a lot of Rembrandt scratches, sketches, and they had a really great exhibit I saw a couple years ago. And, you know, just it's the idea of what did the Morgans say? They love to study scholarship, like the growth of knowledge and understanding how work gets from A to B. And so they don't, mm-hmm. you know, th- they're just this incredible organization. I'm a big fan, obviously, because I would live <laughs> there if I could. It's like the most magical place on earth. Go see it. Enjoy. But also because we have behind it, this woman who was like, I don't care that there aren't men or aren't women doing this. Like I'm, I'm going and I'm going to go do this. And trailblazer. Tr- truly a trailblazer she when she passes away she's she's only 66 hmm. oh no she's actually older she's six years older because she lied she was 72 <laughs> oh right <laughs> <laughs> she lied i forgot that's so funny but you know she had this vision for a collection because curation isn't just about getting all of it it's about a vision behind what you're collecting why mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. it's collected that's that's a huge thing Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that was absolutely something that, I mean, you see in her life and, and thankfully, you know, we end up seeing now her reputation is, is becoming more well-known and she's becoming this really incredible, um, figure, um, Mm -hmm. because I think she was this true force of nature. She was this lady who was like I'm gonna go to an auction I'm gonna outbid everyone and no one and if I am too shark-tongued my boss is gonna be like good what did you do to insult her which is exactly what happened on numerous occasions which I freaking love Mm -hmm. so I love it I mean she used to read to him she used to 
like the culmination of their relationship is something I'm, I would like kill to be in a room with, but also just the fact that she was kept on by the family and, and was able to realize her dream of making it a public institution, I think is, is her greatest, greatest legacy in my personal opinion. So love Belle Green, Belle DaCosta Green and go to the Morgan right now. Yeah. Yeah. Go right now. They have so many programs. Get on a flight if you're not in New York. They have all this research you can do, guys. And their book shop is amazing. I'm a sucker for a bookshop. Also, her office that she was able to have Mm -hmm. was this, like, unbelievable office. And you can now go and it has this, like, crazy display of uh, Greek Roman Egyptian sculpture, early medieval jewelry, like tablets and things. But like Belle was just there. It was like girl. She was 26 when she was hired. She said she was like 20. Um, And you can just imagine her in that room, just like living her life. And I want it. Mm. Anyway, amazing. Uh, Badass. A badass. Truly a badass. Go read. title. Go, Go enjoy. Go Learn visit. about William Caxton. Look at pictures. <laughs> there was a really cool bit in um, um, at Hopkins in our readings room, which I loved. They had our stained glass because it's the most Hopkins things I've ever heard in my life, and I couldn't love it more. Um, instead of like any religious figures, because the school is never religiously inclined, really, because um, uh, Hopkins was a Quaker and he died before it was founded. Anyway, um, it's printers' um, marks. And like ciphers that are in the stained glass. <laughs> I love it so much. Love, love. <laughs> so anyway, go enjoy, go see the Armenian Gospels, the Farnese Book of Hours, Anne of Cleves Book of Hours. They're all there, guys. They're all there. There oh. is work to do at the beginning of this new year. Yes, there is. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> we love Belle Green. I'm glad I got to learn about her. She's so cool. Hey, I am too. And now everyone who listened is also. Yay! Bell Green! Bell Green. Bell Green. Bell Green. Bell Green. Yeah. All right. Well, hey, if you enjoyed this, come back in a month. (laughs) Come back in a month. We'll do it again. Go back and listen. Go back and listen. That's true. There are. This is our 40th episode. What? Mm hmm. 40. Four zero. So you have 39 episodes to catch up on if you haven't been listening. I didn't Isn't that crazy? That. 40? We should do something fun for 50. Oh my god, we should. It's going to be in like a year since we do it once a month. Anyways, tangent. <laughs> Enjoy. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you in a month. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 